You're listening to the Verse Podcast. Anthony Lonesing, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to start by talking about the role of language in assessing and influencing material conditions in the world. Um, I think it's fair to say with your work, you have this combination of examination and practical reflection. Mm-hmm. And you sort of pick apart material conditions in the world as you see them and as you investigate them, and you offer a sort of guide to reassembly. And this has taken many forms in your work, like addressing a specific politician with your contributions to Not Happy John or your work on Israel with My Israel Question. And now you're sort of tackling this big question with your last two books. I believe Prophets of Doom was... Mm was previous, and now disaster capitalism. So how do you pick a subject? Well, books take a long time. They take years. And generally when I choose a subject, I want to choose something that when it comes out in three, four years, it's not going to be out of date. So with Israel-Palestine, sadly, almost guaranteed that issue is not going to get resolved. I've written two books. One was my Israel question. I did an edited collection called After Zionism in 2012. And having visited there um, a number of times since 2005, I'm currently based in Jerusalem. I've never lived there before this time in the last year. I was always believing, and this was pretty much from the beginning when I started my journalism career from 2003, that objectivity just does not exist. Mm. This whole concept, I think, if you work, if I wanted to get a job for the New York Times or the Washington Post or other mainstream news organizations, I think if I said that in an interview, I would not get the job. Um, Now, I would argue that objectivity is an idea that is not even worth pursuing, but fairness is. And I think the difference is that a lot of journalists, if you speak to them from the corporate media, will say, we're striving for objectivity, and that's what our aim should be. And we're not advocating for any one side over another which to me is always so dishonest because actually the corporate media's position is to always have a bias towards the corporate world. Of course, there are journalists in the New York Times who are very critical of the corporate world and Trump or Obama. Of course, there are. I'm not saying every single journalist at those publications. There's some great journalism that comes out of all those, including the Murdoch Press, and I've spent the last 15 years being incredibly critical of the Murdoch Press in Australia, the US, and the UK. But there are good journalists there as well. But fairness is important. So... For me, I wanted to do work that interested me, obviously, work that I felt was relevant, work that I felt I could have some influence or impact over the public debate, either in Australia where I'm born or in other countries around the world. I guess generally where English is spoken, although my work has been translated too, but I think that there is something, and in fact this current book is being translated into Turkish. It's going to be out um, in early 2018. Um, interesting considering the political environment in Turkey, how that's going to play has obviously been a massive crackdown against dissent in the last six, 12 months. And issues also where I could be provocative. And I often see my work as throwing a, a grenade into the debate where I think a lot of journalists, with exceptions, are not as keen to do so. I think the idea of journalism that it's more personalised is becoming more popular. The idea that one, I hate to use the term being a brand, but when someone has to be, in other words, journalist X might be known for doing work on this particular subject, whether I agree with him or her or not. I mean, 
I think one of the things also for me, and this is getting more important the older I get and the more work I'm doing, is I think too many journalists don't actually read very much. might be sort of a weird thing to say. Obviously, people are reading the news, of course, to do their job, but not reading that widely. Too often they're doing the same things that non-journalists are doing, which is reading within their circle, within their bubble. So I make a point to regularly read a lot of material I fundamentally oppose. For example, since the Trump administration came in, or since, I guess, Trump won in November, I didn't read a lot of the far right before. I knew what it was saying roughly about Islam against immigration, etc. But now I read a lot more about it. Now, it doesn't therefore mean that my views are likely to be more sympathetic, say, to Trump. Not at all. Right. It's not had that right. effect. Right. I mean, I guess, the, I guess potentially it could, but it hasn't. It's more to understand where some of them are coming from. And there's obviously a big scope between someone who's fundamentally racist and someone who doesn't like immigration. You can be against immigration, not necessarily racist. I mean, I'm fundamentally supporting huge immigration, which is obviously very unfashionable these days in much of the West. But so it's important to read widely outside our circles. Um, And a lot of journalists are not doing that. And that's, of course, one of the curses of Facebook is we know people read what's on their feed, which often is their friends, which often is the same as what exactly what what each other's thinking. Um, Yeah. You mainly work as a freelance writer, right? I do. Is that a conscious decision you made? Um, Because I think one thing you were getting at in, in, in that comment you just made is this sort of balance that journalists have to make between what their subject matter is and how it affects who is paying them. For sure. I, when I started my career in 2003, I was in, in Sydney in Australia. It's the biggest city in the country, about 4 million people. And I worked for, I guess, a mainstream organisation called the Sydney Morning Herald for a couple of years. And again, cut a long story short, in the end, I was having real troubles getting my work published on two issues. Israel, Palestine, there were increasing complaints to the board of the organisation, the media company, and they were putting pressure on the editors to not run that material. And when I read my stuff back now, it was mild. It wasn't like I was you know, calling for crazy action. I was talking about then a two-state solution. The occupation made wasn't such a good thing of Palestine, you know, crazy thoughts. And the Iraq war. Now, of course, listeners will remember the Iraq war started in 2003, but the debate around that was incredibly toxic for some people. And the left, in many ways, when I say the left was split, there were splits in the left. There were some who called themselves leftists who supported the war, who believed it was going to be a liberating enterprise. And many of us, including myself, who opposed also the Afghanistan war in 2001, because I really had zero to 1% faith that the US military action would do what it claimed to do. Right. I had little or no history shows that. There are clearly exceptions where US military power has helped people, of course. But in general, the record of that since the Second World War has been uniformly awful. Yeah. And therefore, so yes, I, but I've been freelance for, since 2005. And I've always tried to have one foot in the mainstream, one foot in the more alternative independent space, which is where where my heart is in many ways. But I do want to have a foot in the mainstream because it reaches a lot of people still. You can have influence, hopefully. And you're more likely maybe to mix with people who don't always agree with you Mm -hmm. necessarily. And I'm not saying I've necessarily convinced that many people. I think on Israel, I feel as one example in the last... 10 years that I've, I like to think have played a small part, but not an unimportant one 
in Australia but elsewhere in shifting the debate about how a lot of people now view what Israel's doing, that Israel is still a very powerful country. Donald Trump, of course, is going to strengthen that relationship, although Obama was a complete disaster for Israel as well, meaning that he gave virtually unqualified support, $38 billion aid deal, military uh, weapons, etc. But in the Jewish community, in Australia, in the US, elsewhere, in the wider community, public opinion has really shifted in the last 10 years to being far more critical of Israel's occupation of Palestinians and the its treatment of Palestinians under occupation. And hasn't had much effect politically <laughs> yet, sadly, but Israel is facing a real PR problem. And uh, I like to think I played a small part in that as, as, a, as a Jewish secular person myself. Right, right. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up PR because it's definitely one of the things that's big in the book. So you brought up objectivity earlier. It seems like there is a rhetorical game that's being played right now. And with Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, it's no longer ignorable that not only are we sort of squabbling about what actually happened, be it photographed, documented rallies where numbers are exaggerated or diminished, depending on political position. In, In one of the scenes in the book when you're in Utah... At the American Correctional Association, yeah, which is America's exactly yeah. biggest collection of uh, people who are working in the industry can become a member and they have a one uh, every annual conference. Actually, it's like three times a year, actually. One of the things that really stuck out to me was one presenter overtly stating we as these sort of contractors need to align ourselves with law enforcement. We need to have the same talking points. Journalists are catching us too often where our talking points split. We can't be afraid of journalists. We have to answer their questions. Mm-hmm. And that theme runs throughout the, the book that when you ask somebody who is sort of on one side of these issues, generally somebody in the government or someone in private industry, they are very effective at rhetorically deflecting what we might say are the the real issues. And when I say real, I just mean what manifest material conditions are. And so I'm wondering how you approached in your travels, asking them questions? It's difficult, is the short answer. I mean, I suppose it depends where I am. So if, for example, I'm in a place where I don't speak the language, I would say in this this book that would be when I was in, for example, Afghanistan or Haiti or Papua New Guinea. Um, And I would probably be with a fixer. For listeners who don't know, a fixer is someone, a journalist, um, pays in a certain country to help them with getting around language, transport, what's on the ground, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I have long believed that it's not really as important as people think, maybe in the journalism world, to speak to people in power. In other words, clearly it's relevant, yes, that prime minister, president, official X has influence over a group of people. They should be held accountable. There's no question about that. But I'm less and less convinced that if you set up a meeting, either yourself or your fixer sets up a meeting with an official, unless there's, you know, a so-called gotcha moment, you know, where you catch the person out lying or not being entirely honest or sort of dancing, slip up, it happens. More likely maybe on TV if there's a sense that someone is maybe concerned about 
um, looking bad or whatever in front of the cameras. But I'm less convinced that's possible. And too often I find nowadays when I'd speak to someone like that, you're not really getting much information. You're getting something because maybe an editor will say, oh, did you speak to an official to get a, a response? Right, right. The journalistic practice normally is uh, policy X is having a negative effect. Who is causing that? Let's get a response and hold, hold them accountable. And again, that's vitally important. Don't get me wrong. But too often you're not really getting that by doing it that way. There are exceptions. So yes, when I go to a country where English is the, is the language, the US, of course, the UK, Australia, it's on one hand maybe easier to try to get some kind of um, connection with people in those positions. But I find in places that where you don't speak English as much, they may be less likely to be as PR savvy. I mean, I'm grossly generalizing here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have the problem of language. <laughs> so when you're having to speak to someone through a translator, by definition, the whole process slows down. Right, right. Um, I speak a bit of French, but in Haiti, they're often speaking Creole or whatever. So I, I need a translator. I can't uh, speak the language. So to me, one of the things in this book and other work is not just to try to get past that spin and PR, but to explain it to people, to right. sort of say... For example, on issue X, you have been told this for years. Journalists have routinely repeated it. Um, And this is a big issue when it comes to, say, refugees, where in Australia, for example, and I talk about this in the book, but it's become even more relevant as the refugee crisis heated up in 2016, as Donald Trump won, as a wave of right-wing populism is going across Europe. And I fear in 2017 many of those groups are going to do very well electorally in Europe, Germany, France, etc., that the supposed threat that we've been told exists by refugees is largely totally unfounded and does not exist. But of course, a lot of people who you'd speak to and say that will say, well, I feel afraid or I'm, I have lost my job or I worry I'm going to lose my job because the US is bringing in too many Latinos from right, right. Honduras. Or in Europe, similar issues. It wouldn't be so much in Latin America, of course. In Europe, it's more Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Africa, the Middle East, etc. And it's challenging those myths. But I have to say that in Australia, for example, where we are increasingly becoming leaders in the world of repressing refugees and inspiring the US, and in fact, politicians in Europe and the US routinely say how wonderfully inspired they are by Australia treating refugees ter- uh, terribly, And after 20 years, this is obviously before 9-11, these policies began, but even more so since 9-11, how do you really counter a narrative where literally every day a lot of people are watching mainstream TV, Murdoch newspapers, reading, um, hearing government officials of both major sides of politics in Australia saying these people are a threat, they're a threat, they're a threat, they're a threat every day. It's a drumbeat. And I have no answer to that. I don't know. You obviously keep on reporting and challenging it and doing it. At the moment, at our time in history, you have to say that we're not doing very well because the political winds are moving in the opposite direction. That doesn't mean, therefore, one just gives up. It just means that I, after 20 years of seeing how effective it has been to demonise refugees in Australia, and, of course, the book focuses on people making money from that process, both in Australia and globally, it's clear that our methods of communicating that refugees are not a threat haven't been that effective. Right. So we need to look at ourselves, we being journalists, activists, 
politicians who maybe oppose it, whoever it might be, citizens, and say, yes, we are in Australia, for example, a vocal minority who have been opposing this for 20-odd years, but the political winds have not gone our way. What do we do to maybe change the way that we have to sell our message, so to speak, as well? And I'm not saying therefore calling in the communication specialists, but at the same time, I'm saying that we have a problem here, and the US and Europe is the same. Right. It's it's astounding to see how these kind of micro-language games can have these vast Mm. consequences like just another sort of parallel example being the debate right now in the u.s about identity and the use of restrooms well the kind of discrimination and 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 bigotry against trans people is very similar to how the u.s years ago was against gay people and obviously there's still discrimination against the gay community don't get me wrong of course there is but there's been huge progress, right. I would argue. I mean, some I'm not gay myself, but I, I, I'm, I would say that there has been progress for sure in the last 10, 20 years with a mile to go. And it almost seems like the trans community is sort of stuck at a space where the gay community was many years ago and the way that politicians feel so comfortable and, I might add, mean journalists and, for that matter, commentators. I don't know some listeners may have seen an episode of Bill Maher recently where there was a conversation with Milo Yiannopoulos, this awful far-right bigot who has had a bit of an interesting time recently, you might say. He's been caught out apparently, well, endorsing or at least defending pedophilia. He denies that, but putting that aside. And Bill Maher, who I think has been a a raging bigot for years against Muslims, which too many liberals ignore that major side of him, pretty much shared, when I was having a conversation on the Bill Maher show in February this year, 2017, there was a unwillingness to challenge Milo's bigotry against trans people. And Bill Maher just kind of let it through, either agreeing, hard to know, or not saying anything about it. Now, this is supposedly a prominent liberal who says, kind of laughs at the allegation that uh, trans people using the so-called wrong bathroom is going to maybe cause abuse or whatever. It's an absurd thing, as you rightly say. There's no evidence for it. Right. I mean, it may happen one day once, of course. Nothing's impossible, but right. it hasn't happened. And that, to me, is a problem. And Bill Maher is rarely called out on it. Right. And because, because I think liberals see him as a supposed ally. And he doesn't like God and he leader. supports yeah. pod. And that's that's great. You know, I, you know, that's great. But... Islamophobia seemingly has become, in some liberal circles, an accepted form of bigotry. Absolutely. And the so-called new atheists, uh, Chris De Hitchens and Sam Harris and um, Richard Dawkins, all those people who are framed as supposed free speech heroes, A, are often warmongers, B, often seem to love Israel, and C, hate Muslims. Now, those three are connected, and Bill Maher fits into that very clearly. And they all seem to be unfortunately unaware of this process of otherization that seems to be i i don't want to overgeneralize because it's obviously like if we if we had the answer to why this was all happening maybe we would be talking <laughs> in a different scenario but under president yeah, hillary clinton which would have its own problems too right. but <laughs> yeah to put it mildly. Mm. But, but, but Trump but the, is worse. I'm not someone who says they're both as bad as each other. Democrat Party is broken, but Hillary would, on many issues, would not have been as yeah, bad as and Trump. There is something to say for um, not sort of fomenting 
white supremacy and <laughs> there's something and, to be opposed to that and yeah. hillary would not be doing that well i mean yeah she wouldn't have surrounded herself with people who were white nationalists crazy zionists but not white nationalists right right i'm not a big fan of the clintons no i talk in the book a lot about particularly their role in haiti over the years right. um and obviously I, I can't vote in an american election so i didn't have a say in november but um uh, yes when it comes to a range of issues domestic and foreign Clinton would have been disastrous for many of them, and we can talk about that later if you like, but Trump is undeniably far more extreme on a range of issues and the people around him, which makes him a far greater danger. That to me is a, well, I would say it's an objective truth. Some may disagree with that, of course, but I think it is. And um, his extremism and the people around him, their extremism, not least Steve Bannon, his key advisor who has a white nationalist background um, is someone who must be challenged and fought at every single level. And that would not have been happening as much during a Clinton right. period I'd at actually, all. It, it, I'd love if I could get you to read a passage um, that's basically keys right into what we're talking sure. about right now. So... This is about Greece. So for listeners who don't know, Greece has had an awful economic situation for about a decade, if not more. Golden Dawn is a um, proudly neo-Nazi party. It's the third largest party in the Greek parliament for a number of years. They've been around in various forms for a couple of decades. And they literally go around beating up refugees, uh, migrants, Muslims. They are unlikely to probably lead the country, fingers crossed, but they have influence. They're the third biggest party in the parliament. And when I went to Greece a few years ago for the book, I wanted to assess how their influence is um, seeping into the bloodstream of that country, especially at a time with massive unemployment, economies crashed, etc. So... The appeal of Golden Dawn rested on its masterful ability to create a fanciful image of a glorious past being defiled by leftists, gays, Muslims and immigrants. Although far-right parties had existed and found support in the past, none had surged quite like Golden Dawn. The party's supporters, quote, wanted revenge against the political system, Cyrus explained. This is a journalist who I spent time with in Athens. Its backers were the most desperate socially, the unemployed, people who don't have an expectation of finding a job, and the party exploits this, saying, we'll kick immigrants out to get you a job. Ironically, in a nation so dominated by disaster capitalism, Golden Dawn offered rhetorical opposition to privatisation, but in reality, they're supporting every big capitalist in Greece. In Parliament, they even voted against a small tax on ship owners in 2012, the party sided with the shipping oligarchs on the pretext of encouraging them to hire only local Greeks. And this is similar to the situation during the Greek dictatorship days, which only, I might add, ended in the 1970s, very recently, when capitalists were equally supported by the junta. The working class, including unions and political groups, were brutally repressed during this period. Are you saying it sounds familiar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm guessing it's where you're going with that. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. And the effectiveness of Golden Dawn, which is sort of on one level bizarre because Greece is led by Syriza, which is a, well, often said in the media to be far left, certainly a left-wing party. And in fact, in the book, I talk quite positively about Syriza. My views have evolved, you might right. say, since. 
they've been a massive, profound disappointment. Uh, right. They came into power promising to end austerity or to challenge austerity. The kind of economic deal they had been forced to swallow by um, various forces within Europe, uh, major right. banks, yeah. indeed. And the effect of that has been that Greece remains in an awful economic situation. Syriza capitulated to most of the demands and have now lost huge support. They did win another election not that long ago. The right-wing parties in, in Greece aren't really offering much different and Golden Dawn just kind of sits on the sidelines um, still um, not, I wouldn't say controlling the agenda, but certainly has a great deal of influence over how Greek Greece and Greek society views refugees. And, of course, the effectiveness of their message was brilliantly manipulated by Donald Trump. And there's no doubt Trump's campaign was shambolic. And for any so-called normal candidate, the huge numbers of controversies, outrages, abuses exposed would have killed his candidacy pretty much from the beginning. And I think a lot of us and Americans as well, of course, are still trying to assess how that seemingly had little to no effect. I would probably guess if some of those scandals had not happened, maybe you would have got more support. But then again, a lot of people who voted for him said they kind of liked the fact that, yes, they weren't a big fan of the fact that he was assaulting women. Mm-hmm. A lot of women who I have seen speak said, no, we don't support that. But, you know, you know, men do these kind of things. You know, it's the way life is. You know, we can relate to that in our own lives. It's happened to us or female friends of ours and he speaks truths about other issues and Hillary was terrible right so we supported Donald Trump right, right. Um, now that's when I mean, the numbers so show I mean Hillary won more votes than Trump did of course the American system here is so bizarre and ridiculous that Trump still won the election somehow whether he could win another election in four years I don't know but I think people who believe that his message and his administration will be so shambolic that there's no chance of him winning are fundamentally missing the point of course, it's one month in now. I don't know what's going to happen next week, let alone in 2020. But to me, it's very conceivable that he could, his, he, whether it's him or Mike Pence, who knows how this is going to play out, could win in four years because I have little to no faith the Democratic Party will actually learn the lessons of, the, of, their, of their failure last year. And there's been not much evidence of that so far. Everyone else is blamed except for them. It's Russia. It's WikiLeaks. Right. It was the media. It was the FBI director. They all, no doubt, were a factor. But this idea somehow that there wasn't an examination about why someone like her was an awful candidate, seen as dishonest with some degree of um, legitimacy in my view, and in a year where there was a move against um, a corporatized politics, the Democrats put up the ultimate corporate politician. I mean, Trump, ironically, has framed himself somehow as an outsider when, in fact, he's the ultimate insider. Not in Washington, true, but certainly in the US. I mean, he's he's an insider. He framed himself clearly successfully as an outsider and a lot of people seem to relate to that. But yes, compared to what's happening in Greece um, against refugees and in Europe, the Trump administration is, I know now, providing a variety of support to surging populist far-right parties in Germany, in France and elsewhere in the hope that there's going to be a kind of global coalition of sorts of far-right political parties. And I think at the moment you'd have to say that Europe, by the, in a year's time, they may well have had a lot of success and that's something to be very worried about. Right. right. It's a bit depressing, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. But it, it, it encourages me, and, and your book encourages me to sort of dig deeper. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring up this sort of rhetorical aspect of all of this simultaneously with the sort of material cycle that's happening. Your book essentially examines and sort of gives a diagram, a panorama of this process that's occurring in the world and has been occurring in the world, but now it's occurring in... On speed. On speed, exactly. And it's sort of, uh, it's like hyper-capitalism. And Trump is the ultimate, ultimate hyper-capitalist. Yeah, Trump is the uh, ultimate hyper-everything. Obama was awful in that as well. Of course, the book talks a lot about during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. But Trump, I think, is likely to take that to a whole new level. Right. Yeah, I mean, I liberals, mean, of course, wouldn't see that with Obama. I mean, that's kind of I'm going to say one thing about that. Mm-hmm. They're really, what has been deeply frustrating to me since the election of Trump is that somehow many Americans, though obviously not all, and, and outside the US as well, the world didn't end on the January the 20th. This idea somehow that everything suddenly was not great but not that bad before then is so blind and absurd. There are a range of issues, not least the fact, for example, on immigration. Obama deported more people than any president before him. Now Trump is likely to beat that number, let's be honest. But Obama was labelled the deporter-in-chief. And there was obviously opposition to that, to be sure, but not a hell of a lot, not as much as they, in my view, should have been. His foreign policy to a range of places that I've visited, talking about Obama now, Afghanistan, Israel, Palestine, um, lots of, much of the Middle East, was an unmitigated disaster. It caused far more conflict and wars. Again, Trump is likely to be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, the sense somehow that there is a... I think the belief comes down to the idea that says, well, we as liberals, we trust Obama. Obama seems like a nice guy. He's a decent guy. He's a family guy. Michelle's lovely. The kids seem, the girls seem great. Which is exactly what conservatives were criticized for with Bush. Indeed. Yeah. Obama, we think he's a decent guy. You know, he's doing his best. He has to make tough decisions in the, you know, in the White House. But Trump, we don't trust him and he's awful and he's shambolic. And that's actually totally true. But the fact is that Look at the policies, get past the rhetoric. I mean, the Obama policies speak for themselves. And there was, to be sure, also things that Obama did that was positive. I'm not saying that Obama was eight years of an apocalypse. No, there were certain things I talk about in the book and I've written about since where, for example, a few days ago I met a man um, who was facing a life sentence in prison for an African-American guy for drugs. Obama, during his term, uh, released 1,700 people roughly who are facing, who are in life, in jail for life. Um, for nonviolent crimes. For nonviolent crimes. Right. And I met a few of these people recently. And for sure, you meet someone like that and their family and their lives are being transformed. That is a uniformly good thing. Mm-hmm. And Obama did that and I think that he should be applauded for that. But this idea that somehow, as I said, everything suddenly turned dark on January 20th, where there's been trends of many of these issues for years. So, yes, I, I just wish a lot of people had got off their ass in the last eight years. It's great they're getting off their ass now and let's hope that continues and there's good organising and et cetera. But do not be blinded by someone who thinks gives good speeches. Right. Obama, right? Um, good speeches are important, but not really enough. And you go to people in Afghanistan or Palestine and you speak to them, as most Americans sadly have not, and they're going to tell you, we don't really care who's in the White House. We're being bombed or being attacked or being occupied. This is the reality. We don't like, you know, that makes no difference. Yes, it can be different with different US presidents, how a civilian in Kabul is affected for sure. But ultimately, the role of the US in many of these places is negative. And people, to me, what I fear is that the extremism that is being bred 
in many parts of the world because of US foreign policy, whether it's Obama or Trump, are only getting worse. Mm -hmm. And Trump's rhetoric is undeniably playing into an ISIS rhetoric that says, you see, what we're saying is correct. The US hates Muslims and wants to exclude us. And, of course, the cynical side of me also says that Trump would want a terrorist attack in the US. It would play perfectly into his hands. Mm -hmm. To me, it's more about saying, look past the man or woman. Look past the party, Democrat, Republican. Look at the policies. Look at what is not just being said, but what is being done in your name, whether it's domestically or globally. And I think too many people are overly partisan. Yes, you have a party, you support them, that's fine, but... Look at the most vulnerable people in the society. That, to me, is a true test of how a country behaves, whether it's the US or Australia or Afghanistan, anywhere. And with notable exceptions, during the last eight years, during the Obama administration, in which the book talks about quite in detail in a lot of these areas, when it comes to, say, immigration, the Obama administration, with notable exceptions, was pretty grim expanding privatised uh, immigration facilities, building more of them, kicking a lot of people out. Certainly there was protections for some immigrants as well, to be sure, which Trump is likely to undo. And the private immigration and private prison industry is very excited about Trump. Uh, their share prices the day after the election in 2016 went through the roof because they saw profits, greater profits coming. Um, the executive orders issued by Trump in the last while uh, almost certainly going to lead to more people being inside privatised facilities. And that's something, again, that I think people should be aware that there are people making money from this. And there, to me, there needs to be a far stronger campaign to target those companies. Right. Um, that can be done through a range of ways. Um, and they're being paid with taxpayer money. They're being paid funds. with taxpayer money. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people in the US don't realise that there's a privatised immigration and um, prison system. Of course, some people do realise, but many do not. And I think there should be a lot more targeted campaigns against the companies and CEOs. I'm not talking about physical violence, just to be clear. I'm talking about uh, in a non-violent way. But there should be strong campaigns against them um, because, to me, they're making money profoundly. They're doing it probably legally, but in my view, profoundly immorally. Right, right. <laughs> and making money from misery, basically. Yeah, and that's one of the, the really, an, another thing I really appreciated about the book was your sort of illustration of how there's this delicate game that's being played between legality and and then as we as we discussed, the sort of PR machine and how, how things are retroactively explained away or, or hushed. Um, but this dance of we're doing what's legal. And if it's found to be illegal, then a law is made, as in the case, I think it was BHP uh, in, in New Guinea, where they they passed legislation essentially, like I, I think, incurring like a $75,000 fine for anyone who challenges. It's crazy. Um, Papua New Guinea, for listeners who don't know, is a country to the north of Australia, but it's also a, a sadly a client state of Australia yeah. as well was given independence in 1975. But yes, the, the situation there, it's a stunningly beautiful country. It's wracked by violence and it has some of the largest mines in the world, um, copper mines and others. And the effect of that, not surprisingly, has been huge human rights abuses. The companies like BHP and others paying 
uh, private security guards who often commit abuses against locals, locals not getting any really proceeds from the mine, etc., etc. So, yes, this idea somehow that mining brings prosperity. I mean, you often do hear that from the Republicans these days, mm-hmm. um, as you do in the major party in Australia who, who is currently in power, the Liberal Party, so-called Liberal. I mean, that sounds weird for an American audience, but the Liberal Party is a capital L liberal. They're actually the conservatives oh, in Australia, right. weirdly. Um, yeah, mining and coal brings prosperity, so we're told, apart, right. from the, apart from the massive climate change problem. But let's not talk about climate change. I mean, right, I've, right. you have an Australian government doesn't even believe in climate change. So I think that brings us to an important part of this whole discussion, which is there seem to be a few sectors that we find these multinational corporations having their hands in. And what's astonishing is that, you know, even though your chapters cover countries thousands of miles apart, somehow we keep seeing the same multinational contractors at play. Absolutely. And so it seems it seems like there's security, as we see in Afghanistan and Australia and Greece, and private militarization, securing borders, securing financial interests. I, one thing I thought you did very cleverly was mention how um, in these areas of devastation across the globe, there seem to be new banks in each chapter. So there's this militarization and the securing of borders, which obviously plays into um, immigration and asylum-seeking narratives. There's natural resources, including labor, the labor yeah. of local populations. Um, and then there's internal detainment. Mackenzie Work theorizes that we're not in capitalism anymore. We're in, maybe we're in something worse, and he calls it vec- vectorialism. The idea being that there are these sort of channels that <clears throat> private interests have been able to insert themselves into mm-hmm. and control how things, in this case people, yes. move through them mm-hmm. and are extracting wealth from them. Yeah. And the, of course the easiest example is private prisons where you have extremely cheap labour. The numbers of people who were in incarceration and also in some kind of judicial process right. was more than was uh, were enslaved at the height of slavery. I mean that... I mean, listeners probably will know this, but there's about 2.3 million people in jail tonight in the US. Obviously, there's a range of racial backgrounds, not just African-Americans, whites as well, of course, Latinos, but disproportionately per their population, of course, blacks and um, Latinos. And that system of mass incarceration, clearly I'm far from the first one to talk about it, won't be the last. Um, whether How that plays out during Trump's interesting because on the one hand, in the last few years, there has started to be a degree of political bipartisan belief that mass incarceration is a disaster from the Republican side cost too much and isn't really working. Mm-hmm. And during the Obama years, that number did come down a little bit, to be sure. Now, the obsession with law and order that Trump has and the people around him have would suggest that numbers likely to go back up again. But there are still those Republicans who at least recently were opposed to mass incarceration. So we don't know. It's too early to say. But... You'd have to say that probably mass incarceration is unlikely to to change very much during the next four or eight years. It might go down, it might go up a little bit, but it's unlikely to go down very much, if at all, because there are too many reasons why both private industry and also the state likes to control minorities, because that is what it comes down to. Well, those with no voice, that's obviously other blacks particularly, or poor whites. I mean, obviously there are poor whites in prison as well who don't have a voice. 
Um, and as listeners will be very aware, you know, the disparity in sentencing for two people, you know, white and black guy who sells exactly the same amount of drugs. It's been written about for decades. Not Obama did make some changes to that through his Justice Department, which is to be very much welcomed. Likely that Jeff Sessions, the new Attorney General, may well change that or reverse that because of the so-called law and order obsession. We don't know. But there is a... I mean, the American justice system has been deeply racist from the beginning. It was born in sin and it remains in sin, in my view. And Australia is remarkably similar. Um, in fact, a lot of colonial countries have a very similar situation. And Israel definitely does. New Zealand does. Canada does. Um, there's a reason all those countries with varying degrees of success or failure, have um, profound problems with their Indigenous population. When I mean problems as in how the white population deals with Indigenous population. Um, levels of incarceration, drug use, etc., is disproportionately high. And I talk about in the book how that is deeply exploited by private industry and the government. I think also one of the things I wanted to just mentioned just briefly is that this is very frustrating when writing the book and I have no real solution how to solve this is that we really live in an age with little to no accountability so company x is found to have abused refugees or immigrants bad health care someone dies in their care so to speak care the food is terrible um they don't get you know they die because they didn't see a doctor in time whatever it may be the evidence is clear what happens nothing the company still gets another contract. Maybe a head will roll, maybe. But the companies have become so large. And one of the theories behind why that has happened and why there is no accountability is that, for example, when a company is um, lobbying for a contract, when it comes down to it, it's only going to be between one or two companies anymore anyway. So they might miss out on one contract, they get the next one. Um, when that was when Australia's privatized immigration system, it's the only country in the world that has privatized its entire immigration system, and which is something that I'm deeply ashamed about. But a lot of Australians actually don't know that that's even happened. That when it came down to it, when a number of years ago these contracts were being sort of doled out, the companies knew that, as I said, they would maybe lose one, but they get the next one. In other words, they've, they've grown, I think there's a quote in the book there by one of the heads of G4S, which is one of the largest uh, British um, contracting companies, sort of said, and I'm paraphrasing his comment, that ultimately we've grown so big and that governments know that only a few of us can do the jobs now. Um, now, the question, obviously, that therefore should be, in my view, well, why not put it in public hands? I mean, why have mass incarceration in the first place? My argument is not to say, well, everyone in jail should just be transferred to a public institution, problem solved. Obviously not, but mass incarceration is the problem. But when you have the profit motive in these sort of issues, by definition, care is reduced. And we see that in every single country. And that, to me, is something that a responsible state would not do and yet more and more states are doing it because they feel like they don't want to take the risk on themselves. And when something goes wrong, which inevitably it does, and I've seen this time and time again, the book has this in great detail, the government blames the company. Don't blame us. We didn't, you know, you know, we're not running the facility. They're running the facility. It's like, yes, but you're paying them. And in theory, there should be accountability for them. And that doesn't often happen. And I'm at a loss often how that accountability can be more strongly enforced. That has to come from the population, the citizens, to be more demanding of both their 
um, local members who support these kind of contracts, but also the companies themselves. You know, if they're a company, buy shares and demand change. Um, often our system is set up in such a terrible way that, which is what I argue in the book, that corporations become more powerful than the state, in my view. Some people when the book came out questioned that view and I'm happy to have that conversation with someone who disagrees with that. I think often that is the case and that's the problem. Just to yes. put a point on that, you mentioned that um, as of 2011, 111 of the... 175 largest economic entities in the world were multinational co corporations. It's horrendous. Yeah. Um, and I think that transfer to private wealth, although I think a lot of people share that opposition, and I think some Trump supporters particularly, for example, did talk about that as being a problem, they voted for someone who is the epitome mm. of that problem. Um problem, I guess, the Democrats threw up, threw up such an awful alternative that people clearly felt, in my view, very mistakenly, that Trump was their best option. Some people believe that. Right. Too many people believe that. <laughs> yeah. Something that gave me a lot of hope about your book is that I think there's sort of a hidden second book inside of it, which I would call like disaster communalism. Mm -hmm. I don't think you give it unneeded attention. I think it's just there. And it's something that I, I, I really encourage um, listeners to check out. But in the face of all of this, there is something human and real that is happening and happens in these conditions. In Greece, where, where healthcare is abysmal, um, there are people pulling together clinics. In Haiti... That was very inspiring to right. see them. I mean, Greece is supposed to be a first world country. I mean, not that right, I mean, right. Haiti well, certainly is not. Right, but but in Haiti, there's, you know, there, people are trying to figure this out. They are pushing back. Mm -hmm. um, there was a strong revolutionary force in PNG, in Papua New Guinea, that this isn't just going to happen. Uh, and that spontaneously and maybe even uncritically, people push back. And that though this content and this discussion and everything we've talked about is extremely depressing, that fact cannot and should not be ignored. That I agree with you. Yeah. I found that inspiring as well because obviously I was going to all these places over a number of years. Right. The research took mm, yeah, four or so years. I mean, I'm not doing it full time, of course. You know, Otherwise, the advances aren't enough to do it full time. And also, just listeners be aware, I'm also doing a film called Disaster Capitalism which is uh, working with a New York-based filmmaker. His name is Thor Newrider. We got together in 2012. Some of these trips for the book I was also doing with him. He was shooting the film. The film is about Afghanistan, Haiti, and Papua New Guinea. It's people basically who... Are, the film is different to the book, although it's called the same thing at the moment, um, uh, questioning really the effectiveness of particularly US aid in those places and how often they cause more problems than they solve. So we have a rough cut. We now have a distributor and we still need to... It's not quite finished, but it's getting there. So hopefully it'll be out this year and people can go for just Google disaster capitalism film. There's a website, there's a trailer information. Um, it's coming. But yes, uh, to find people both in the book and also in the film who were resisting unbelievably big odds, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. And I think often those voices are 
ignored in much of the press because as I think I say in the book, and I've, this is, goes back to your first question about what sort of journalism I do, most journalists are embedded. Now, embedding obviously has become a term that, you know, journalist X goes to Iraq and goes with the US troops around Baghdad or Fallujah or whatever. That's obviously embedding. And generally that journalism I think is pretty pointless, although there are exceptions where it gives an insight, of course, into how US troops are behaving. But embedding is more psychologically. Embedding means within a system where you often don't criticise certain people or corporations or governments because you're scared of losing access. If you are working in a certain environment and you're not getting certain quotes or comments from a politician or official, your editor is going to be pretty pissed off and say, well, what are you doing? You won't have a job. Um, or you won't have a job in the mainstream press, at least. Uh, so, and I've always been fundamentally opposed to being embedded. And that goes back to my point before about saying that speaking to people on the ground is important, that yes, officials, prime ministers, presidents cannot be ignored. Of course, they're enacting the policies that are causing the problems often. But I think as journalism has become in a weird kind of way more parochial, that's obviously tied in at the same time and connected with the fact that the media industry is in crisis, has been 15 years, the internet's changed everything, no one knows where the hell it's going yet, it's still in chaos, and if you ask me where it's going to be in five or ten years, no one knows. I mean, the media's going to exist in some way, of course, but it's still very, it's still in flux and we're in this amazing uh, transformation, for better and worse. But the effect of that often has been that journalists are generally going less to a lot of these kinds of places to visit because of the expense, because they can't get away from the office, because people often are looking far more um, internally. I mean, that's particularly a problem in the US, but it's not just the US. So you often rely more and more on independent journalists to do that kind of work. The question is, what is the so-called business model to support that and how do journalists do that? How do they not have to make a lot of money, but you know, they have to eat and get by, etc. There needs to be some kind of support mechanism. What that is, the, the conversation for another day. But I'm constantly deeply dismayed by my own industry. I have journalist friends. I'm a journalist. I don't want to be ostracized in my entire community. But I'm deeply, deeply dismayed by my industry routinely. I don't really feel like I have a great deal in common with a lot of journalists that I meet. I've also met a lot of journalists, both well-known and less-known. There are exceptions to that, of course, because... You often have conversations with them over dinner, over a drink, and then those views don't appear in the media. Um, sometimes for good reasons, mostly not. Um, they can't really say that. They don't want to be deemed too partisan. I mean, I've long said, for example, on this issue that I think journalists should say who they vote for if they vote. I mean, obviously in Australia it's compulsory to vote. Um which, of course, a lot of Americans think is a bizarre idea in a democracy. But it must be nice. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously more people then, of course, do vote, right. um, which in theory means that people are more engaged in the political system. Is I'm not entirely sure actually that has that effect anymore. But anyway, um, I've long said people should say who they vote for. Now, the argument against that is, for example, well, you find out that I vote for the Green Party, for example. Um, someone who's a conservative might say, well, I'm not going to listen to that guy anymore. He's a, he's a raving leftist. Sure, that's a risk, although I don't think it'd be that a secret what I am saying. It's not about 
I mean, I would still read a Republican. I'd still read someone who voted for Trump. In fact, in some reason now I even want to read Morton because I want to, I'm trying to understand beyond simply they're all racist, they're all right. white bigots. It's complete nonsense. I mean, this is such a dangerous narrative that exists in some parts of the media here. Yes, there are white bigots and there's racist, for sure, but it's much more complicated than that. In Australia, the same, in the UK too. It's not everyone who voted for Brexit is a raving Islamophobe. Right. Uh, they're not. And also what explains the Islamophobia in the first place? Doesn't something come out of thin air? Where are those messages coming from? Let's think about it. The media. Yeah. Um, Murdoch Press in the UK, Daily Mail, a lot of the um, more conservative TV channels. So, yeah, being embedded as a journalist to me sounds like the most unattractive thing ever. It would have made me more money. Right. <laughs> Not that my life is aim is to make money. But obviously, I want to make a decent living and have a nice life. But... Um, you, pay, you do pay a price for that, I think. I think often over the years people have said to me, we wish we could be as outspoken as you are on some issues. And I said, well, it could be a trade-off. You're making more money than me and that's lovely for you and your family. But I would like to be able to speak my mind. I'm not saying I never. Everyone, everyone self-censors at times. Everyone does. Um, and there are times where I have as well. But on a lot of issues, including particularly the more co- more controversial ones, and Israel Palestine is up there. A lot of people I meet, including in Jerusalem, there is a disconnect between what they're saying to you mm-hmm. and what they're actually writing or broadcasting. And that to me is a problem. I'm not saying everyone should be a partisan hack. I'm saying, at what point, when there is clear and real repression, when there's an occupation there for say 50 years, you won't come out and say it's wrong. We're opposed to it. I am not saying your life is dedicated to ending it, but simply writing a story now and then ain't going to cut it, in my view. Now, that, of course, comes down to journalism versus activism. I see myself as a journalist first. By far, I'm a journalist. As I said at the beginning of our conversation, most journalists are activists, but they're activists for the state. They're activists for the system. They're activists for corporate power. If you write a lot of stories giving uncritical comments to a a corporation and don't push back a lot you're an activist activism is has been in my view unfairly framed as a simply left-wing pursuit there are right-wing activists there are right-wing people who have their own agendas and i might not agree with them but um they're an activist as much as someone on the left yeah i agree it's it's for some reason it's been sort of yeah cordoned off into kind of a wailing and gnashing of teeth and it's a way to try to dismiss someone and say, oh, he's just an activist. Right. As if somehow, A, what's wrong with that? And B, you're campaigning maybe for who knows what is climate change or, you know, right. less prisons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, how that is a bad thing, I don't know. But it's a way, I think, for much of the corporate media to dismiss someone by saying, oh, they're not serious. Mm-hmm. They're not objective enough. They're not right. balanced enough. They really don't see the full picture. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Is it complicated? People often say about, well, conflicts are complicated. Well, sometimes they are, but sometimes actually they're not. That's used as a device to make people who aren't engaged just not engaged. Right, right. It, it, it is this crazy flip where news isn't all that's fit to print. It's like news is all that's fit to title click, you know? Mm-hmm. And so all, in terms of... Especially these days, absolutely. Yeah, and in terms of ideology, as you were saying, there are these vast oversimplifications just in terminology and sort of then the echoes that that creates in how people approach content. And then on the other side, there's this 
aversion to the simple facts of the material conditions. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly bad, I've noticed this in war zones, for example, just to briefly talk about Afghanistan, because I see, and there are notable exceptions, and I know some journalists who've done amazing work there who are unembedded. But if you're embedded there, you A, that means you're probably going to be with US troops, and the security situation there is undeniably awful, and there is a risk against Westerners, of course, that's not, that's not made up. There is a risk, and I felt that when I was there. There's a targeting of Westerners... Um, journalists, aid workers, etc. But when you are embedded, you're seeing a very, very narrow view of the world. And because the security situation there is worsened so much, even journalists who are not embedded, their ability to go out has also been restricted because they worry about going to, say, a cafe or people aren't really drinking publicly in Afghanistan, like a bar, so there aren't bars, but restaurants or cafes. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of suicide attacks. Some listeners will know against... Um, places where Westerners would eat and hang out and, you know, chat. And the effect of that has been when I was there last a couple of years ago, um, going out to uh, cafes, restaurants has been massively reduced. Now, I don't say that to say, oh, poor journalists can't go out and have a, have a nice meal. I mean that your ability to interact and socialise with people is massively restricted. Your world becomes much of a bubble. So you socialise with people in each other's homes. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's very nice. And you can sort of hang out and eat a meal together. But the effect of that is that you're interacting less with local people. Mm-hmm. And the effect of that is the journalism and that you are in more of a bubble. Now, I'm not saying journalists should ignore those threats. They're real, as I said before. But it is a real challenge how you deal with that. I mean, I, you know, we were there, I was there a few years ago working on the film disaster capitalism we were shooting and we went to certain places now we made choices where we went and we had locals we trusted you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time that could happen in new york of course but in afghanistan that's much more likely and we you made calculated risks um whether i would make some of those risks in time because uh, personal situation changing i don't know everyone has to make that decision for themselves but i found that the effect of a declining security situation is that the journalism, with exceptions, has worsened. The year before, a few years ago, I lived in South Sudan for the year, um, which is a country that mostly gets ignored here in the US. It is now the third biggest refugee crisis in the world after Syria and Afghanistan. The US was a key player in making that country a reality. For listeners who don't know, it's the world's newest nation, became a nation in 2011. And it's essentially a failed state. It's collapsed. And we were there. I was there with my partner. She worked for an NGO, non-government organization, a few years ago. And I was a journalist there. And there weren't that many journalists there. In fact, now the effect is that journalists have been the last permanently Western-based journalist for AP, the Associated Press, was kicked out last year. So journalists can go in and out, but there's no one based there permanently. And the effect of that is very clear, that the coverage that was already pretty awful is now virtually non-existent. And let's face it, racism plays a big part. Do a lot of Americans or Westerners care about blacks being killed? Do they care about blacks killing each other? Do they dismiss it as, oh, they're just fighting again? These Africans are always fighting. You know, they're always fighting. I mean, they're actually not Muslims, they're Christians for the record. But nonetheless, there's a lot of war and conflict. And we have, in my view, Western responsibility. When you help build up a state and then you just walk away when it falls apart, you have responsibilities in the US particularly. 
So I use that, use that as an example about places like that where I think there needs to be, I think, a lot greater awareness of... I don't say that journalism is amazing, everyone should support it. No, I think a lot of journalism is very insular. But what I fear we're moving towards in journalism, this affects also books as well, is that the so-called clickbait will be free, and that can be read by anybody, but the so-called good journalism and the elite journalism is only those who can afford it. Behind a paywall, they pay, pay for a magazine, whatever. Um, that deeply worries me as someone who thinks that that's only going to, in fact, make the elites more educated in theory. It doesn't make, it doesn't make them you know, make good policies, of course, but at least it makes them more informed. And a lot of people who either haven't got the time or interest or money to subscribe to the New York Times or The Guardian or The New Yorker or whatever, or other publications. Um, and that really worries me about the future direction of where our societies are going. I have no simple answer to that. No one does, which is why everyone in the media is kind of flailing about like an idiot trying right, to, you know, work right. out how to do this. But that issue, I think, is less talked about, that everyone's trying to work out how to do a sustainable business model. That's fine, and that's not unimportant. But let's think about the effect of the fact a lot of people are only going to be fed crap because it's going to remain free. Right. And the better stuff, you're going to have to pay a lot more for. Um I mean, and the more controversial stuff. And absolutely. The more nuanced stuff. Like in America, of course, public broadcasting and public media is a bit of a dirty word. I know it exists. It's likely to be cut more under Trump, for sure. Um, in my country, Australia, public broadcasting is also under attack, but it's stronger. In the UK, of course, is the BBC. And again, I'm not these organisations in Australia. It's called the ABC. Mm-hmm. It was modelled on the BBC. There are major problems with it. There's issues, there's bias. It's far from perfect. But I just, to me, I think there's a real need for hearing different voices. And I think too often the mainstream press doesn't do it, which is why I try to write books like that because I say, well, I often feel if I don't do it, not as many other people I wish would. Mm-hmm. And hopefully there are some people who will, I guess, support that and buy it, you know. And mm-hmm. well, not only buy it, but engage with it. Mm-hmm. So you're living in Israel right now? I'm from Australia, as you can people mm-hmm. tell my accent, but I'm living in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Yes. And you've encountered some friction. Is that fair? In Israel. Yeah. Yes, I have. So, in short, I am there. I have a journalist visa and a work visa from the Israeli government. I, yes, write critical articles. I've done investigations based in Jerusalem. But for listeners who don't know, the West Bank and Gaza is quite close by. You can travel quite easily there. Well, certainly by car. Gaza is much more difficult to get access to. It's blockaded by Egypt and Israel. Late last year, I was asking at a press conference a senior Israeli politician a critical question. He was very upset about that. That then led to this crazy campaign between a a far-right Israel lobby group in the UK, the Israeli government, the Jerusalem Post. I know if listeners are interested, they can Google my name and they can find out more, but essentially a campaign to kick me out of the country. And... Uh, on one level, I was a bit bewildered. I simply went to a press conference and asked the question. I wasn't really expecting uh, this response. Clearly, I, I don't think because I was naive. I, on this issue, I'm very far from naive. But it really, I think, highlights Israel is becoming an authoritarian state. And I think in the US, obviously, a lot of people still view Israel as a robust democracy in the Middle East, and that's routinely said by politicians and much of the press. And Israel is not North Korea. Of course, it's not. It's not Syria, obviously. It's a democracy for Jews. 
and I am Jewish, but if you're Palestinian in the West Bank, you live under occupation. If you're a Palestinian in Gaza, you are living pretty grimly, to put it mildly. And the authoritarian streak that is being enabled by the US, by its funding, by its support, again, this is bipartisan, Obama, Trump, Bush, Clinton, is leading to a country that is increasingly controlled by religious nationalist fundamentalists who do not tolerate dissent, who want to kick out either critics of Israel who are living in Israel, that could be journalists, aid workers, whatever. And I don't think Israel is that far away from um, kicking out citizens whose views they don't like, in other words, tearing up their passport, mm-hmm. um, including Jews. Now, to me, this is a question of honesty to say, okay, if you want to be that kind of country, fine, say it. Don't say you're a democracy. You're not. Be honest about who you are and what you stand for. And then let's see how the world treats you. And Israel is already, I would say, and this is, I'm hardly the first one to say this and nor will I be the last, Israel is akin in many ways to apartheid South Africa, the way it treats its, uh, in Africa, of course, it was black population. In Israel, it's a Palestinian community. There is a surging BDS, boycott, divestment and sanction movement. Uh, we started in Palestine and supported by the majority of Palestinians to try to bring some accountability to what Israel does by saying Corporation X should not invest in the West Bank. Musician X should not play until there is some kind of peace deal. Um, and a number of prominent musicians, Elvis Costello probably is the most prominent, Refuse to play. Many musicians, of course, do play Israel and artists. BDS is not going to bring Israel down tomorrow, and it may not bring down Israel at all in the end, but it does contribute to a belief that says you cannot occupy people for 50 years and expect to be treated like a normal country. Mm-hmm. And so I am one small, tiny part in that that says... Israel does not increasingly want to tolerate a critical question. For listeners who are curious what my question was, which got this massive attention, again, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was a senior politician. He may well be a a prime minister. His name is Yair Lapid of the country, potentially, in the next couple of years. Essentially saying Israel's been occupying Palestinians for 50-odd years. Do not think that Israel and politicians such as yourself in the coming years will be treated around the world just like politicians from apartheid South Africa used to be treated. And I, not namely as a pariah, I didn't say pariah, but like that. He was pissed off. He gave me a ridiculous bullshit answer about it's a democracy here and some other absurdity. And the question was very fair. It's not untrue. A lot of other journalists came up to me afterwards and said the same thing. But what was so curious going back to our comment before about journalism is the main reason they asked that question was I was at this press conference and I thought most journalists are asking this guy crazy softball questions what's your vision for the country okay great what's he going to say I thought this is bullshit I'm going to get up and ask a decent question but afterwards some journalist said to me oh your question was a little bit um aggressive okay well that's obviously a matter of opinion I didn't think it was it was assertive and frankly, that's what needs to happen. Right. I mean, at what point do you sort of keep on 
dancing around holding hands with people. Your job should be to be assertive. Your job should be adversarial. That's your job. But, of course, they don't see that as their job. And so when someone, and I'm obviously not the only one who does this, but when someone like me does this, everyone goes, oh, I don't know, it's a little bit rude. It's like, well, I'm not trying to, you know, hurt the guy. He's a politician. His job is to answer questions. He gives me bullshit answers and I'm not going to take it, you know. So, look, I am facing an issue and uh, it's unclear how it's going to get resolved. There's been a bit of media around it. I've got some support from various free speech groups. It's unresolved. I think long-term prospects there are challenging. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. And thanks so much for uh, speaking with Thank me. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you.